0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Courtney Thompson, who's the creator of Archival Kismet, and we're going to dive behind the scenes of what it takes to create an academic conference. Welcome to the show, Courtney. Hello. Thank you for having me. I am so glad you're here and that we get to have this conversation, but before we dive into archival kismet and to academic conferences, will you please tell us a bit
0: about yourself? Sure, of course. Um, I'm Courtney Thompson. I am an associate professor, recently promoted to associate here at Mississippi State University in the Department of History, where I teach and research in the history of science and medicine and women's and gender history. One of the things I like to ask my guests
1: is if they'll share a bit about their own academic journey. What led you to
0: history and what made you interested in going to grad school? Of course. Yeah, sure. So I had a kind of weird, um, (laughs) a weird path, a very conventional path in some ways and a very odd path in others. Um, I'm one of those students who went right through from undergrad to grad school, and then got hired relatively efficiently. So I did my undergrad at Harvard. And my grad uh, studies at Yale before serving for one year as a lecturer at Yale, and then being hired here as an assistant professor. Um, but I say that it's weird because I never intended to be a an academic, um, let alone a historian of medicine. The long and short of it is that I had originally intended to go into medical profession, probably psychiatry, psychology, something like that, as an undergrad, and I was all set to take all of my medical classes, all the science classes I needed for that. And I enrolled in a first year course, sort of, you know, one of those core or general ed classes on the history of psychiatry. It was called Madness and Medicine. It was taught by Anne Harrington at Harvard. And at the time, I was not a big fan of history. I thought history was really boring. And I was like, okay, this is the closest thing to what I'm actually interested in. So I'll take this class so that I can get rid of my history requirement, right? So I can move on with my life. And I fell in love with that class. I fell in love with the history of science and medicine. I ended up changing my major. And uh, as a senior in college, I decided rather last minute, due to a a really long sequence of events that I'm not going to get into, but um, I decided quite at the last minute to apply to grad school. I got into exactly one, which was Yale, and then I went and somehow I, well, the first few years were really rough, Um, but I slowly found my feet and I figured out what I wanted and I was fortunate enough to get the job that I have today. So in many ways, really conventional path straight through, but um, a lot of behind the scenes that makes it really quite strange that this is where I ended up ultimately. I... Love it
1: when people share their accidental paths. I'm also an accidental historian. I also took a history class to deal with a, a requirement and I was very surprised at how well the class went and how interested I was because I did not think that was anything I wanted to take even one more class than I had to
0: and let alone... Change my major and say, "Okay, I'm all in." Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't always think of myself as a. You know, it's it's interesting because I went to I did my undergrad in history and science, which is a weird kind of major at at Harvard. Where you take a basically a minor's worth of science classes in one field, and then the history of science classes. And then I was in a history of science and medicine department for my uh, grad work. Um, and now I'm in a history department, and I always feel like a bit of the odd duck because I, I you know, I don't think I've taken an American history class since I was in high school, you know, uh, and yet somehow I'm am an Americanist. Um, I, I was very much focused in this weird little field of history of science and medicine, and so it's it's very interesting to come out of that kind of corner and discover all these other aspects of history, and you know, it it really is a funny thing how how sometimes. You, you walk into a, a topic quite by accident, and it ends up completely changing the next 15 years of your life, the rest of your life, probably. You're the
1: creator of Archival Kismet.
0: Can you tell the listeners what that is? Sure. So Archival Kismet is a fully online, uh, a virtual conference community that began in Well, uh, I developed the idea in 2020, in December of 2020. So it's very much a a child of the pandemic. And it's now had three different iterations. It's a fully online conference. Um, It's run completely by me (laughs) and uh, occasionally with help from a co-organizer, although I do all of the actual technical setting up and scheduling, things like that. And it is a an interdisciplinary, though, mostly focused around history conference, where the idea is for historians and other scholars to share in their love of the stuff that they find. And stuff doesn't have to be physical stuff. It doesn't have to be material objects, but cool ideas, cool objects, interesting letters, manuscripts, the sources and the stuff of history that gets us so geeked out, right? It's a place where we... I encourage our presenters to be geeky as possible, to come in without really polished work, to come in with really early ideas, to share the cool things that they've found, and to solicit feedback and advice. So in a lot of ways, it's a... I don't want to say it's a flipped model because it's not the sort of thing where you watch the talks and then come together to talk, but the talks are very short. We try to keep it to 10 to 12 minutes. We ask people to be informal, to be jargon-free, to be to geek out about the things that they find, and we devote most of our time to sort of collaborating, discussing the findings, the materials, and I found that it's it's very, very generative. Um, we have really fantastic conversations that end up going far beyond just the specific things or ideas that our speakers bring to the table, the virtual table. Um, But instead get into things like how and why we teach, the ethics of doing history, um, the problems of precarity within academia. Um, and it's also just, I think a a nice break, a nice mental break from how formal conferences tend to be. We tell people in the intro, uh, in the opening email, you know, wear your pajamas, dress up, dress down, eat, bring your dog, bring your kid, um, and geek out with us, you know, show off the cool things that you don't know what to do about. Um, and in particular, it, it very much comes out of my own frustration with going to conferences and, um, People give these talks that are so polished and so perfect, and then they mention, "Oh, this is coming out in a journal next month." And you're like, "Well, then I can't say anything to you. <laughs> I can't ask you questions. I can't push you. I can't. I can't give feedback. Um, all you're doing is advertising your work. You're not actually, you know, using this collaborative space to to make work happen." Um, so I hope that archival kismet is a space that helps us to make work happen with the stuff that we're excited about, but we don't quite know what to do with. And I'm very pleased to say that over the past two years or so, quite a few both informal and more formal essays have come out of Kismet. And on the website, if you check out archivalkismet.org, we do have a constantly updating um, sort of publication list of things that people have produced coming out of Kismet.
1: One of the things I noticed at Archival Kismet that sets it apart is the scholars have space to talk about how they feel about what they're doing, and that to me stood out as a big difference between the atmosphere at Archival Kismet and any other conference I've been to.
0: Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, You know, maybe this is because I've gotten really into the history of emotions lately, but... I think that there's often something very sanitized and abstracted about how we talk about history and how we talk about our findings. And this is the case even when we're talking about things that should produce an emotional response, right? So, I mean, one thing that I've been working on lately, and I talked about this at one of the Kismets, is I've been doing some research around the topic of pregnant children, which is unfortunately in the news right now. And it's the sort of thing that, I don't know how you do a project like that and not feel emotional about 10 year old girls getting pregnant, right? I, I, I think I think it's sort of obvious that you would have certain emotional responses. And of course, that's a particularly depressing topic and there's a lot of depressing and uh, frankly, traumatic, material that scholars work on in history, but there's also a lot of joy and fun and humor to be found in our profession and in the things that we find. Um, and there's a lot of joy and excitement that we as scholars have of, look at this thing that I found in the archive and it made me stand up and shout, or it made me cry, or I immediately took a picture and I sent it to my DM group and we all you know, exploded about it. And it's such a shame. And I think that part of this is, again, because by the time you go from that amazing find in the archive or wherever you found the thing to the publication, it can be years later. It could be several projects later by the time it actually comes out in print. And that does tend to sand off the emotional experience of doing the work, right? The excitement of doing the work. Um, And I I think we we should celebrate and we should be excited and we should also... Uh, not to share our excitement and joy and geek geekiness but also the the harder feelings our, our feelings of um, despair or upset or depression or even our uncertainty should I use this source how can I use this source what do I do with this thing uh, because we don't like to express our you know and it's not just imposter syndrome but I think that you know there's a real um, unwillingness among scholars to talk about when they're not sure about what they should do or can do or the limits of their own their own uh, abilities and that's another thing that i think's been really nice about the kismet space because sometimes we have even very senior scholars who are like i found this cool manuscript And I don't know what to say about it. And just being honest about that process, I think, is really eye-opening, whether it's somebody who's a grad student who's like, I found this thing and it doesn't fit into my dissertation, what can I do with it? Or somebody who's very senior, who has written a few books and says, here's this cool thing. I know it's exciting. I don't know why it's exciting. And to sort of open the, the door to the very early stages of developing research projects and yeah, the emotional component of diving into these different topics and projects.
1: You mentioned um, taking science classes and thinking your career would go one way. As historians, we're often told that we should try to have the objectivity of a scientist. I would argue that science is fairly biased as well. But as historians, while we do need to decenter ourselves, I think we need to be really aware of where we are in relation to our work. And I don't really know that we should approach some of these difficult things as though we were scientists. We're
0: in the humanities. Absolutely, um, it's it's a common thing that I I tell my students, both my undergrads and my grad students, objectivity is a myth. Right. I mean, from the history of science perspective, there's whole books about this. And I actually teach them about how objectivity was invented as a stance, as a pose, Right. But, you know, this is something, it, you know, it's funny, I was actually talking about this with a, a colleague of mine just the other day that when I was trained, you know, we were very much taught this, you know, we 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 have to find historical distance. We have to play the stranger we need to, you know, of course, historical objectivity is is impossible, but we do have to find certain distance. And we need to think about, um, you know, people in their historical time and place and what was available to them and not judged by modern day standards. And I wasn't trained too long ago, right, to be clear. But I think that there's uh, been a lot of pushback to those points of view lately, both from within and outside of of academia, both from within and outside of academic history, which is really good. Um, for me, myself, I mean, I've certainly been very inspired by recent conversations over the past few years coming out of Black Lives Matter, right, and other activist groups, especially among disability activists, about how being able to find that distance is in itself a kind of privilege and how uh, the way that we talk about certain aspects of history is a uh, it reifies particular kinds of privilege and can re-traumatize communities. And that's something that I've become very sensitive to. But I also think, you know, to be quite frank, that the way I learned this lesson first was in one of the first classes I ever taught. I was teaching a seminar on, uh, oh gosh, I think it was the history of the body, gender and the body. And it was a week in which we were discussing J. Marion Sims, which for listeners who might not be as familiar, J. Marion Sims was a southern antebellum physician who, among other things, experimented surgically on enslaved women um, with vesicovaginal fistula, which is a very painful condition that requires uh, that he he would attempt to surgically repair it without anesthesia. Um, sometimes some of his patients You know, experience as many as a dozen or more surgeries. I mean, really horrible stuff, right? And so we were talking about J. Marion Sims, and this was a classroom in which I had a very diverse group of all women, (laughs) no men in this particular class, because that's how gender classes tend to go. And one of my students, who is a young black woman, raised her hand, and this was a really powerful moment for me where I really learned from my students. And she said, You know, Dr. Thompson, I know that. We're supposed to find historical distance and we're supposed to keep our historian hat on. But when I read about stories like this, I see myself in them. And I can't help but feel depressed and sad and scared when I hear about things being done like this to women who look like me. And the thing is, she was right. And I was, it was a function of my own privilege that I hadn't been able to think of it like that until a student pointed it out to me. Um, And I think there's still, I do think this is generational. I think there's a lot of older scholars uh, who still think that finding historical distance is really crucial and important. But I think that it's much more important that we... First of all, humanize our historical actors, all of our historical actors. So, thinking not just, oh, you know, how did J. Marion Sims do what he did in the time and place, but what about, you know, his black enslaved patients? Um, Betsy Anarka, um, Deirdre Cooper Owens has written a fantastic book called Medical Bondage about, about this subject and has done a lot of, um, has, has really changed the conversation about how we talk about. Sims and his patients, but also, I, I think that I think we have an ethical responsibility as well to people in the present, to descendant communities, to people who see themselves, whether they are students or our readers, in these stories, to be upfront and honest about atrocities and violences in the past. And I mean. I, there is a lot of that. There is a lot of that in the history of science and medicine, and it's especially hard because a lot of the people who want to read the history of science and medicine are uh, physicians and scientists, or future physicians and scientists who want triumphalist narratives about, gosh, you know, Florence Nightingale and Louis Pasteur and and the famous the famous people, right? The great men and women. They don't want to hear the bad side of the story, but the bad side of the story and the flip side to Qui bono, who suffers, is just as important. I would argue it's more important because the other side of the story has been told. We know about the heroes, um, but there's still a lot of resistance. I, I, I've gone off in a real tangent. I'm sorry, Christina. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, as you can probably tell. Um, so <laughs> I, th-
1: I think it's all important, and I think it all comes back to what we present publicly and how we present it, and which parts we keep quiet and which parts we say out loud and why we make that decision, and how that lands with our readers, our listeners. And I I think that's really what you're grappling with, and what needs to change at the conference level, as well as in the classroom level.
0: Yeah, and I think some of it's about humility. And I don't mean the sort of false humility that everybody, you know, I'm, I'm so humbled to have been awarded this thing, or I'm so honored that this article has come out, yada, yada, whatever. I mean, actual humility about the limits of our training, the limits of our abilities, the limits of what we can know. And also an acknowledgement that who we are as historians right now in this moment should necessarily be should change, right? The me of five years ago made very different choices than the me of today. And hopefully, I do hope that five years from now, 10 years from now, I'm a very different historian, because that means that I will have been constantly questioning myself and thinking about the choices that I'm making. And I do look back at some of the choices I made in publications or in papers or in talks, and I cringe. <laughs> I cringe at some of the things that I did or said or the positions that I took. And I think that, that rather than, than fleeing from the cringe, we should lean into it. Um, and I do think that this is also part of what's key to to, ta- to bring it back to Kismet, you know, the the average conference that you go to, everybody is so, obs- well, especially junior scholars. I think more senior scholars are a little more, la- you know, laissez-faire about these things. But... When you're a junior scholar, when you're a grad student, you just you want to give the perfect talk, right? You want to make sure it's bulletproof. You practice it. Maybe you give a few practice talks in your department. You get feedback from your friends, from your advisor. You want it to be bulletproof, right? And then you get up there and you get nervous and you give this overly rehearsed talk. And then you, you hope you get good questions. And then you sit down and you sigh in relief that it's over. But it's very performative, right? And part of what you're performing is is being a historian and competence. And what that means is that there's not a lot of room to to demonstrate the places where you're not sure or what you don't know or where you need help or where you know you're new to a field or to a question and to ask you know sort of naive questions because nobody wants to look dumb up there, right? Um, and that's something that I like about Kismet that. I think that we have cultivated a community where people are not afraid to look a little ignorant. Uh, And I mean that in the best of ways. For people to say, I don't know what this is, can any of you help me with that? Um, Where we can really be honest about the things we don't know and the things that we're not sure about. And while I think this is very useful for very junior scholars, grad students especially, and we've had a number of grad students who have presented, I think it's equally useful for more senior faculty. Because one of the hard things about leaving grad school is you no longer have a built-in community of people who will give you feedback. You no longer have a committee. You no longer have an advisor. I mean, I'll always have my advisor, but I don't bring him my papers and my talks anymore, right? So this is a a space for you to get some of that feedback. And uh, I I think it tends to be generous and kind and generative, which is good. We have our guidelines for respectful behavior that I think are very important, but a place for people of every level and every stage of the historical process to be a little um, vulnerable, and to be honest about the limits of their perspective and analysis and and where they know they need to do better and do more. You mentioned giving a paper at a
1: at a face-to-face conference and practicing it and getting some questions from the audience. And I remember as a grad student, my number one goal was to be able to answer the questions that I was asked. Oh, yes. <laughs> It was not to be thrown questions I had never thought about and fundamentally change my research design or seek out a new archive to look for data that could start to address that. It was really to, to pass the test, which was to answer the questions, and you wanted to get out of there without one of those situations where there's somebody who's asking a question that really they know you don't know because they want to go ahead and have 5 minutes to talk. Yes, yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. I, I think that there's um something very defensive about how we train young scholars especially to think about I mean, uh, to think about writing in general you know, to, to cite everything. So nobody can tell you that you left out a citation to refer to every book so that they know you did the reading to, to defend yourself. But I, I think that what that, that can result in is, um, very closed off scholarship at times. Right. I mean, I, 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 I I've also come to this because I'm now I'm now in a writing group. Since so this is another thing that's been big for me since the the pandemic began, and it's a writing group that's mostly historians and medicine. But we're not all focused on the same fields, the same areas. We all have different training, um, working on very very different things at different sort of stages and careers. All this, and when they read my work, and I've been sending them, <laughs> I sent them an essay recently that didn't have footnotes yet. That's how that's how early you know the the work was right really, really early. They they push me. They say, Why aren't you reading in this field, in that field, and the other thing? And, you know, if I had waited until I had that perfectly polished chapter with all my citations done and all my arguments clean, I'd just say, oh well, you know, it's too late now, right? But instead I am reading in that field now. And it's giving me better ideas for how to work on this chapter and how to work on the book and create stronger work. I think that being a little vulnerable and showing work when it's barely half-baked, right, where it's still just batter, is, is a real opportunity for um, all historians to really expand... Their, the nuance of their analysis and the strength of their work. But if the only time you ever go to conferences, what you're presenting is basically a finished cake, there's no way to add something to the batter at that point, right? Um, other than throwing the whole thing out and starting over, which for various reasons is basically impossible to do as a graduate student. And is, uh, you know, if you're a pre-tenure scholar and you have a clock, it's, it's a no-go either so giving people the opportunity to really get to to really present their work before there even is work when it's just an idea or just a question or just a thing they've found. And to see what's what historians, not just in their field, which I think is the other crucial part of this, but historians and scholars across a variety of subfields will look at something and have different references and different readings to suggest or different ideas. And that I think is where the generative I you know, the, the generative content of kismet really comes in, of encouraging One, not only to be vulnerable as a scholar, but also for modeling the kind of good, um, the, the good kind of community feedback that I wish we got more of as historians. And I mean peer review is great and all. Peer review is wonderful. But again, by the time you send something out for peer review, you're going to be very resistant to making wholesale change. That's why people, you know, complain so much about reviewer two. Nobody wants to get an essay back and have it say, "Okay, it's about X, but it needs to be about Y." But if you got that feedback when you were just starting, you know, you might have ended up writing something entirely different. Um, Better For for better or worse, I I don't know. But I think sometimes, often, it's for the better. If you at least were able to entertain these different ideas and different different aspects, different ways of looking, and then you at least have the strength and the courage to say, and the knowledge to say, I considered that, and I decided this was a better path, rather than having to say, I never considered that at all.
1: Another fun aspect of archival kismet is the show and tell (laughs) because some of the things that we're showing and telling each other may not make the final cut and then you never got to geek out about it with anybody
0: yeah Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, I think this is actually originally how I kind of pitched it to some friends that it's, it's almost like show and tell. Absolutely. And some people did this literally, they had their objects or they had their artifacts, right? Either physically with them, or you have these great images of the manuscripts, the images, all this great stuff that we find in the archive. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was a lot of geeking out. There's, there's, I think it's good. I, and I think that part of it is sometimes you just come across this really cool thing that you're so excited about, but it doesn't fit into what you're, you're doing. And so you have options with this. You know, Kismet gives people an opportunity to try to figure out what these options might look like. Are people interested enough that this could be a paper? Or maybe, uh, you know, one of the other things that I think is nice is people often have ideas about what to do if you want to write about something. Here's a blog that I've never heard of, right? Or here's this one journal, and they are looking for short pieces right now on this topic. And so it's also a way to figure out, um, to sort of gauge the, you know, the potential audience and see, you know, is there a home for me to talk about this weird thing that does not have a place in what I'm writing right now? Is there a way for me to use it? And if I'm so excited about it, will other people be excited about it? And, you know, I'll be honest, there's there's definitely been kismet talks where I sit there and I'm like, I'm not quite sure I understand why this person is excited about this thing. But it's good that they are. You know, it's I'm, I'm happy for them. That's wonderful. Um, but if it helps them to figure out... Um, a place for it to go, a thing to do with it, a way to look at it, or even if it just gets it out of their system because they got to do the show and tell and and they got to geek out of it. And now they're like, good, I did something. And now I can sort of mentally move on from it. I think that's all to the better. And it gives us more freedom
1: in archives. If not everything has to be so quickly rifled through and scanned because everything has been turned into a utilitarian purpose. Will this fit my project or won't it? Will this fit my project or won't it? And you're very quickly going through all kinds of things and you can't pause and say, this actually has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now, but this is amazing. And I want to look at this and I want to take some notes and take some time. And yet, You're thinking of your research dollars that sent you there. You're thinking of your time. And there's those pauses we don't sometimes give ourselves permission to take because we have to have this productivity mindset. And yet when we don't take the time to explore something different, we shut down some of the creativity that actually fuels our intellectual passions.
0: Absolutely. And I think that there's, um, you know, I, I really admire, and I, when I was a grad student, to be quite frank, I was jealous of those students who came in and they had a topic, and they stuck with the topic their entire time through grad school, and they published on that topic, and they had a lane, and they knew what their lane was, and they stayed in their lane. I very much admire people like that. I have some very close friends who are who are that kind of historian. They have not just a subfield, but a specific question, and they will probably devote their entire careers working on that question. But I'm not like that. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm too distractible to be. To be frank, and I think I do think part of this is is being a historian of science and medicine because you know I, I think that in other subfields um, there's much more of a shall we say fixity to time and place that I just don't share. Um, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy to bounce around in time. And to bounce around from country to country, uh, I I think there's nothing wrong with that. I've I've had other people tell me my approach is not the best, but I think it's more fun this way. But when I look at my CV, you know, everything that I've worked on, like most of it, has nothing to do with anything else. But I can also pinpoint with every, you know, just looking at my, you know, I I have my CV up now, and I can I can pinpoint the archival moment behind every single one of these things. The cool thing that I found, and in a lot of cases, it was something neat I found. It didn't have to do with what I was working on. So I put it to the side, but then I came back to it and turned into a cool article or it turned into a nice talk or it turned into a book project or, or whatever else. And I think that why shouldn't we give ourselves the freedom to, okay, maybe you can't pursue that cool thing right this instant because you have a deadline or you have a dissertation or whatever, but having it in your pocket, that list of potential research projects, it's so freeing. It's, so, um, it's such a gift to your future self as a researcher because a time will come where you get really bored of your book project or whatever, or you just need a, a mental break from the big thing that you've been working on. And then you have this sort of wonderful little collection of treasures squirreled away that you can take back out and play with and do things with. And I think that being a little peripatetic in terms of research interests is it makes things a lot of fun. And again, I admire those folks who who have a lane and they stick to it, but I tend to wander all over the map and it hasn't it hasn't really served me poorly. I think Kismet is, I guess, my way of, of trying to encourage more people to go off the map with me. Because sometimes I do feel a little lonely off in my weird little corners that I, I find myself in.
1: So could you take us behind the scenes of actually creating and running an online conference? You started it uh, in December, 2020, you said, had you done an online conference before? You've managed a face-to-face one before. What skills did you transfer? Or was this just,
0: let me start from scratch. Well, it was um, it was impulsive, to say the least, since I'm uh, a bit of a Luddite. I'm not much of a, a computer person. I'm not very techie at all. So for any of those of you out there thinking about doing something like this, just know that you can have no skills and still manage this somehow. Um I have uh, been a local arrangements chair in the past for conferences for Chiron, and I've also helped with some other symposia, things like that, but I've never put one together from scratch. So uh, to take it all the way back to the beginning, this was in the middle of the COVID pandemic, and uh, we were all, you know, we were at this point, gosh, it was December 2020, we were more than six months in, we were all bored to death, um, and I was... I was just getting frustrated with all sorts of things, my research, conference experiences, missing community, all these things. And I can't even remember what this was in response to originally, but one day in December of 2020, I tweeted out something along the lines of, I really wish that there were conferences that were just histories of cool stuff where you could just go and geek out about the cool stuff you found and you didn't have to have an argument And you could just be a geek about history. And this tweet blew up immediately. Um, I mean, you know, blew up for history standards, but it got around, you know, a a thousand or so likes in the first few hours and all these people responding saying, do it, do it, do it, do it. And so that same day I sent an email to my, my department head and I was like, can I do an online conference? And he was like, yeah, go ahead. And so by the end of that day, I went from this basically a shitpost tweet to putting together a CFP and starting to put together a website for this conference, not really knowing exactly what I would need to do in order to make it happen, but just assuming it would all just sort of work out, which ended up being more or less the case. But, um, I'll just say it was, it was one of my, uh, bolder and, and less, uh, (laughs) um, Less, less thought out plans that I've ever had. So at the time, what we had here was a system called, we had access to a program or a platform called Symposium, which we had as a trial basis at the time. So I was like, we already have this, we had actually gotten the, the part of why this is even in my head is because we had gotten a message around the same time that we had trial access to this new conference platform. And so that was free for me to use. And what it did was it was able to host the CFP for me to use that to post, um, you know, a lot of information about the conference. What I realized really quickly is that I couldn't actually use it to have the conference itself. I wanted it to be fully online of course. And I also wanted to be as accessible as possible, which was very important to me um, because I have a lot of friends and colleagues and uh, in the disability community, and I'm very aware of the challenges with accessibility with online conferences right now. So I looked into a few different options. I talked to some of my friends with various disabilities about what was available, but also keep in mind I had no money, and I had very little tech ability. So, what I hit upon was that we have, uh, we are not a Zoom campus. What we have instead is a program called WebEx. And WebEx, uh, what we have uh, as part of free WebEx is basically different sort of ways you can do meetings, but there's also a way to run conferences through it. So, I mostly used links to WebEx to run it. Uh, WebEx has the benefit of having. Fairly good live captioning as well as an available transcript, which made it more accessible than some of the other options. Zoom, for example, doesn't have um, uh, the same kind of live captioning available, at least not uh, what I was able to get. So I put this together pretty quickly and sort of had to learn on the go. Uh, people asked me about, well, do you have a policy on accessibility or respectful behavior? And I was like, uh, I better get one. So I, I made one up. Um, I figured out pretty quickly that I had people coming from all around the world. Um, we had presenters in Australia, Japan, Kazakhstan, Uh Israel, all across Europe, so time zones were a problem, which meant that one of the hardest challenges, honestly, wasn't a technical issue. It was just figuring out how to put panels together that would actually accommodate people's, you know, very different time zones and schedules. Um, and other than that, I sort of just took it one one day at a time. One thing: I'm a big, I'm big at planning. I'm a planner. Um, so what I did is once I had set the final the dates of the conference itself which was basically the first thing I did because I put the CFP together in December for the April conference I built everything else backwards figuring out okay if this is going to happen by this date then I need this information by this date and yet and so forth and so on. Um, So pretty much everything for the first conference was run through Symposium, uh, but the links themselves, the actual event was hosted in WebEx, and then I used Google Forms for the registration and to gather the various kinds of data that I needed in order to put together the program. After the first conference, however, we lost access to Symposium. So then I put together a website through WordPress, and that's now the site that I use both to publicize um, Archival Kismet, to share the publications that come out of it, as I discussed. And it also, the thing that's nice about WordPress, or at least what I paid for for upgrades, is I can have password-protected parts of the website. So for the conferences themselves, I have a page for each conference. It's password protected. You only get the password once you register. And then that page links you to all of the different events, uh, which are still hosted, at least for now, through WebEx. I mean, it's not a perfect system. You know, it's uh, WebEx. I've found a lot of people, despite the fact that it's basically the same thing as Zoom, a lot of people have trouble with WebEx. Um, There's always going to be issues with the internet. Uh, There is no perfect system. But considering I'm doing it A, by myself, and B, without any financial assistance whatsoever, I think it's been pretty successful. And it's been quite interesting as well to see other really big conferences that do spend a lot of money on their tech, on their on the the platforms that they use and so forth. And to see that it, often they're not that much better than what I've been able to sort of jerry-rig together for free. Um, so it's been really interesting seeing other conferences either go online or in the past year go hybrid and have a lot of issues with tech, um, despite the amount of money that they're pouring into it when you know, this my little my little Podunk conference has managed to chug along for for three meetings without a single dollar spent, except for you know a little bit out of my own pocket just to for the website hosting and things like that. Um, so as an experiment, I've been pretty pleased overall. I know that there's always going to be issues, but until I have some kind of funding or other assistance, I'm I'm pretty proud with what we've what I've been able to put together. Um, it also just goes to show that it is doable. It is doable. Uh, a lot of conferences I've been to a lot of big profession, professional organizations have made a lot of stink about how expensive it is to make conferences hybrid or accessible. And the thing is, it's not expensive. It is very doable with free or inexpensive resources. The biggest cost is ultimately in time. It's a real, um, The the biggest, the hardest part for me is having to be the only person who runs it. Because even when I've had a co-organizer, only one person can do the tech stuff. Um, If we had the money for one of those fancy, you know, conference hosting sites, I think the load could be shared. But at present, it's just me, you know, doing all of the behind the scenes. And that's where it does get a little tricky. But it does go to show that it is possible to do this kind of virtual these kinds of virtual meetings to make them accessible and to make them friendly and engaging for a lot of folks.
1: And it shows how important community is to scholars. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. If a thousand people respond to a tweet, yes, do that, we need this. (laughs) There were a lot of people watching the tweet saying, okay, I don't need to also respond because this, you know, everybody stormed the castle already. They said what I was gonna say. You can be pretty sure on something like Twitter that if a thousand people responded, there's plenty more who felt the same way but didn't Oh yeah, yeah, go ahead
0: and answer. I mean, just for the first one, I think I had 150 people send in proposals and that I was able to accommodate – Almost fifty or sixty of them. I mean, uh, that first one—it was four days and it was all day. And even with short talks, ten to fifteen-minute talks—you know—that's that, these were full days. <laughs> and it was just me in front of the computer. In fact, I, I had—I uh, think I had three computers that first time. So I had one for running Twitter and promoting, one for actually running the the events off of. And then another one for keeping to the schedule for answering emails for people who are having trouble getting in and all of that. Um, but that four days was an absolute gauntlet. It was exhausting. So the next two iterations, so we had two more so far. One was in uh, December of 2021. And the most recent one was in April of 2022. Those two were just two days, and I was able to accommodate about 25 people or so. And in addition to the presenters, then there were about another... I'd say 150, 200 who registered for the first iteration, more like 50, 60 for the other two. But those are still pretty respectable numbers, all things considered. Um, And then a lot of other people just reaching out, excited about it. Um, we do have volunteers who who sign up to moderate, and moderation in this case is more about just keeping the conversation going and flowing. There, the other thing that I really love about Kismet that you don't see even in other um, online conferences is that the chat is really active. So I encourage people to post in the chat comment like comments and jokes and dog pictures. And so there's always this wonderful, very fun, lively chat going. And sometimes it's a little silly, but you also have people posting in there, oh, have you read this thing? And, you know, not everybody wants to raise their hand and ask a question. Not everybody has a a definite question, but sometimes even just from seeing what the responses are to the thing you're showing, you know, a whole list of people just going, wow, in the chat, like that could be enough to really pump you up to keep going on a project, right? Um, so, The chat is another important piece of that that people get really into, and there's a wonderful group on Twitter as well. And In addition, I've also collaborated with Nursing Cleo, which is an online peer-reviewed blog in the history of medicine and gender, which has posted a series of uh, short essays that have come out of Kismet, and another set of essays are due to come out in the Journal of the History of Behavioral Sciences as well. Slightly more formal, but still on the shorter side. And I'm also looking to collaborate with other um, uh, venues as well in the in the future, either to co-host or to offer a place for um, presenters to to maybe publish, you know, something either formal or informal to get the most out of their Kismet experience.
1: One of the things I noticed when I was presenting on Kismet was that there were responses happening in, in the chat. And that was pretty exciting because if you're at a traditional face-to-face conference, people are just sitting quietly, stoically while you're talking. You don't know if something is particularly interesting or or what. You
0: don't see a response. But to have those responses showing up in the chat, it was like, oh, yeah, okay. it's- Validating. And, you know, I think a lot of times historians are afraid to have fun. And why, like, this is what we're doing for a living. Why shouldn't it be fun? Even when it's hard, or again, even if you're dealing with depressing material, to have the validation of a bunch of people saying, This is so important, or I'm so glad you're telling us this story. That can be such an important validating thing, especially because again, you know, the life of the mind is often so interior. We spend so much time in our own heads um, and it can get really, it can be very easy to get lost in your project, but also to be uncertain if anyone other than yourself is going to care about it ever, right? Um, I will also say, and this is, is, I, I don't know if this is a minor point or not, but kismet tends to be very female. Um, By and large, the majority of presenters are, um, uh, we we do have uh, non-binary presenters who have presented as well, but by far and away, the the greatest proportion of both presenters and audience members have been um, female. And I think that this also really changes the dynamic. It tends to be, I mean, because of the way we're socialized, um, or the way I at least have been socialized as a woman, to be generous and kind and to put my enthusiasm out there. And I think that that also does make for a, an atmosphere where people are a little bit more willing to, to be vulnerable and to share generously both their work and their suggestions. Um, I always I try to keep it. I try to not make it uh, like uh, I I try to have a very diverse group of presenters. But, you know, it always it always comes out that that, um, you know, because I ask for pronouns on the that that most people do identify as female. And I I do think that that does shape the the ethos, the, the mood, as it were. Whether we present in person or online,
1: we can have some mishaps. We can have mishaps behind the scenes or in front of everyone. So I'll share when I was in the archival kismet concept <laughs> I conference. I would going to call you
0: out, just, just to be it's, clear. It's
1: okay. Thank you. That's very generous. Um, there was a practice where we were all invited to log on for one of the practice sessions and get comfortable with the um, program that we were going to be using because, again, it was a little bit different than Zoom and, and that some of us have used. So practice session went just fine. But between the practice session and the actual day of, which I think was 48 hours, 36 hours, it was a short window of time. My county went on wildfire watch. And by the time I was supposed to present, um, we had such bad air quality, we all had to have the windows closed. There wasn't enough Uh, power for me to use a fan because we were on these sort of rolling brownouts so like the freezer was just kind of quietly defrosting onto the floor and I'm in this shut up space (laughs) with an intense amount of heat because our wildfire season tends to come uh, out in timing with these terrible uh, heat waves and very dry air and my my, uh, rolling brownouts mean that my slides aren't going to show I'm lucky to have Wi-Fi. I'm lucky to be able to log on. But the talk that I'd prepared, even though it was more informal and it was more curiosity and discovery-based, I couldn't show any of the things. And so I ended up holding up sort of like the the um, printouts and photocopies that I'd actually brought home from the archive. And I was like, can you see this? Can anyone see this? And I was just sort of melting into a puddle, and that was incredibly grumpy. And... But mishaps are going to happen in person or online. And just having that grace to be able to pivot and get through it while people are potentially staring at you um, it is something that is part of... Um, Giving any presentation, whether it's at a conference or in front of a classroom or not, do you have any tips for how people can have grace
0: under pressure like oh, that? I mean, I I rarely have grace even not under pressure, so I, <laughs> I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Um, you know, it's I think one of the things with with Kismet is that we had a. a We had a lot of people with tech issues, and some of it is because they were dealing with the kind of stuff you were. Sometimes it was a matter of, um, you know, people in, in foreign countries and just the internet just not being. Up to up to the needs. Um, I also just had you know some folks who are just not as tech savvy and couldn't figure out how to share their screens, so they had to send me their slides, and I was their slide deck during the talk. Things like that. Um, but we also had people. Their dogs came in. Their babies came in. Their partners came in, like you know, to interrupt the talk. And I think um, one of the the good things, I guess, about about the COVID years is I think we've all gotten a lot chiller about these kinds of interruptions, uh, or at least I hope we have. I mean life happens. And, and all we are is just people who have to deal with this. Um, you know, I, I am still one of those people who gets nervous every time I give a talk, no matter how many times I've given a talk. All you can really do is is move on. I think it's belaboring the point that makes it it awkward. Um, you know, I, ha- I remember once having a talk where, you know, I had pasted pictures into my PowerPoint, and then I cropped them, right? And then for some reason, the way it was displaying is it was showing the cropped shape, but not the right part of the picture for any of the images in the entire slides. And I was just like, I I can't fix this. Like, there's no way for me to fix this. There's no time for me to fix it. I just have to go with it, right? So you just have to, um, you know, acknowledge the awkwardness and move on rather than trying to stop everything, just talk through it, explain the thing that you wanted to say or show. I do think that if anything, the most stressful part for me and the most stressful thing for a lot of people is keeping to time. And that's because, you know, even if you practice and you practice, it never is the same amount of time as you think it's going to be once you're actually up there. Um, It's one of the reasons why we were pretty chill about time management for Kismet, even though we asked people to stay short. We also tried not to cut people off because that can really just throw you, you know. But I have... uh, learned over the years how to cut things on the fly. And I think it's a really good practice to learn if you keep your clock by you, which is what I always do now when I present. And I know I'm going short. I always know there's a few paragraphs or sentences I can just skip over. Maybe it's an example. Maybe it's discussion of a particular source or whatever. But if you can build into your head a worst case scenario of like, oh, I have less time than I thought, here's where I already know I can cut. I think that that often makes things better. So I guess my big tips will be build in a worst case scenario, right? Places where you can cut a way to give a talk without the tech, if that's what you need to do. And if things go wrong, you know, the best way to handle it with grace is to fake it till you make it. Just be like, Oh yeah, the images don't look like they're coming up, but Oh, well, we'll just keep going rather than stopping everything obsessively trying to fix them. Uh, you know, commenting on it on every single slide that goes wrong. Just, just, you know, if you can't act like it was meant to be that way, act like it doesn't bother you, and maybe hopefully then it won't. And if any of that ever worked for me, <laughs> I would I would come back and tell you. But fake it till you make it is a is a wonderful uh, attitude towards life. I've found
1: for listeners who haven't yet tried to be in an online conference or been at online presenter at a hybrid conference what would your advice be
0: for them oh that's a good that's good advice uh a good question um let's see if you can if there's an option log on early and check out the tech make sure you know which buttons to press to share what you got to share the day of your talk, um, as much as possible, try to eliminate distractions. I um, my dog likes to come in and say hi to me during the day, um, so I make sure my door isn't just closed, but it's latched, so she can't just push her way in. Um, check your, you know your your lighting setup and everything. If you if you care about how you look, if you're not too worried about that, then, then don't obsess over it. Um, And other than that, you know, one of the great gifts of online conferencing is that you get to really be comfortable. You can wear sweatpants and fuzzy socks. You can have your favorite cup of tea in front of you. Um, You can have if there's a, a thing that makes you smile or that gives you luck. I think that having a little item around that you can fiddle with that nobody can see is a wonderful gift that you don't always get at a face-to-face conference. And just a small thing, but try to practice your talk so that you're looking in the camera as much as possible. The way I do it on my computer is I set up my screen so that my um, my talk is right at the top of the screen, like right under the camera. Usually only a very narrow band of my Word document or whatever is showing so that most of my screen is the slides. But because my my comments are up at the top, I have to basically be looking at the camera or just beneath it in order to give my talk. And generally speaking, if you are looking at the camera as much as possible, it's going to look better, uh, but it's also going to make you look more confident than if you're looking down at your desk, if you're fiddling with paper, which of course can make a terrible sound. Um, Oh, and that's one last very silly thing. Don't wear loud necklaces or earrings because it'll get picked up in your microphone and that'll be distracting for everyone. And bracelets do too. And bracelets do too. Yeah. I mean, I pretty much never wear jewelry anymore because I don't go anywhere, but I do always make sure that the day of the conference, I don't wear, I, I make sure that I don't have a necklace that's touching the uh, the mic so it's not clicking or making weird noises. Does it make a difference to use headphones for a conference? I find that it does in part because it helps me to focus. Um, I, I'm one of those people who's very distracted by ambient noise, whereas if it's right in my ear, it's easier for me to, to focus on what's going on. I also do have a, um, a standalone mic that I, I got early on in the conference, but I tend not to use it. I just use my, my old pair of earbuds that I hook up to my screen and Um, you know, I always have the mic just in case I, you know, I need to switch to it because they're having sound issues or whatever, but I think earbuds are the way to go or over the ear headphones can be even better if you have a loud house or, you know, lots of noise going around in your neighborhood, dogs, people, I don't know, leaf blowers, (laughs) whatever else. Yes. The lawn service showed up while we were taping. Yes, of course. Of course it did. I think, um, Uh, I once had to, I think I had to do one of these and they, they started working on our fence at the same time. And I was just like, just the sound of, um, you know, what do you call it? Uh, nail guns going. And I was like, Jesus, of course, of course it happens today. Of course. (laughs) Isn't that always the way of it?
1: It is. And these are important things to have the lawn service come. They're very appreciated.
0: But the timing can be really rough when it's not what you expected. It's always it's always the worst timing. I think um, we had – was it our roof that was getting done? During the first kismet, I actually had to bring all my stuff over to campus and set up, like, reset up my office after I'd brought everything home because there was noisy stuff going on at, at, around our house. And I was like, this is such a hassle. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? what do i hope the episode sparks for listeners um i hope that this episode emboldens you to find your inner geek to embrace that geeky side of you to be vulnerable about your work to share the very earliest pieces before you even really know what you want to say or how to say it or what other books you should be reading to really put yourself out there and say, I'm a historian, I'm a geek, I found this cool thing and I don't know what to say about it, help me. And maybe you can do that at Kismet or maybe you can do that at a conference that you develop or at a face-to-face conference or just with your friends. But I think that this is really key to keeping us finding joy in what we do as historians while also keeping our points of view fresh and exciting so that we're not always defaulting to what's obvious to us, but we're keeping an ear open to what other historians, especially in very different subfields, might see and find exciting about our work. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr.
1: Courtney Thompson, and telling us about the creation of archival kismet and how we can make the most out of online conferences. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life, on NewBooks Network. I hope you will please join us again.